Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Last week, I sat down with my wife Janice and my daughter Isabel and watched the greatest movie ever made in the history of movie making. I'm sure all of you have seen it, McFarland, USA. It's a movie about a high school cross-country team. Yes. You've never heard of that? You're lost. You better get it. Anyway, in the movie, which is mostly a true story, a veteran coach comes to a downtrodden school and he starts a cross-country team. And he doesn't know anything about cross-country, but he knows sports. He's been a coach for a long time. And he knows how high school kids are motivated to excel. And so he scrapes together a ragtag group of kids who work in the fields, and he molds them against all odds into a team that wins the state championship in a huge upset. The coach knew all along what it took to win, but the kids didn't. The kids had never run a cross-country race before. They didn't even know what the sport was. So when the coach has them do drills that seem kind of weird and are very painful, like running over big mounds of almond hulls, the kids accept it. They believe the coach because he knows what is best for them. And they know that he knows what is best for them, even if they don't understand it at first. And to me, that's really similar to how we should relate to God's role with his people. So is God really in control? I titled the message, Is God Really in Control, this morning. Because we hear that. As Christians, we read that, and that's what the Bible says repeatedly. But when we look around and when we see the news and we hear what's going on, all the tragedies that we see, we just hear about all the mess in the world. And even when we encounter in our own lives the pain of hardship in a million different ways, uh, legitimate, painful, difficult trials, we are confronted with one of the most basic questions facing humanity, which is, is God really in control? Well, let me answer that with some other questions. Do you think Dave Dravecki, a star major league pitcher for the San Francisco Giants, believed God was in control when he suffered from cancer in his pitching arm at the height of his career and literally had his throwing arm break in two and ultimately had it amputated? Do you think Michael Franzese, a mafia kingpin in New York, believed God was in control when he was earning $5 million to $8 million per week, mostly from illegal scams? He escaped five federal indictments from a tough New York prosecutor named Rudy Giuliani. Or do you think he thought God was in control when he was finally convicted, thrown in prison, and spent three years in solitary confinement. 
Do you think an energetic 17-year-old girl named Johnny Erickson believed God was in control back in 1967 when she broke her neck diving into the water at the beach? She was paralyzed from the neck down. Or again in 2010 when she was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer. Or did Dave Dervecki think God was in control when his experience led him to a dynamic speaking ministry to motivate and inspire people all around the world. He shared how he came through years of painful rehab to understand the comfort, encouragement, and hope that God provides. Or was God in control when the mobster met a Christian woman from Anaheim, completed his time in prison, and became the only high-ranking official of a major crime family ever to walk away from the mafia without protective custodies and live? Or was God in control when Johnny Erickson learned how to paint exquisite pieces of art with a brush stuck between, or between her teeth? Or when she wrote a book or starred in a movie about her life and began a foundation that would donate more than 10,000 wheelchairs to people all, all over the world? Now let's bring it down to today. Is God really in control when millions of people in and around the fourth largest city in our country are stuck in misery because rain from Hurricane Harvey just would not stop? Is God really in control when you have car problems that prevent you from getting to your job or use up precious dollars for repairs? Is God really in control when you lose a job or you lose a loved one, or you have a conflict with a spouse or family member or neighbor? Is God really in control when you can't see a future for yourself? You're not sure what to do in life, or where you will be next week, or next month, or next year. Is God really in control of all circumstances? Everything? The good? The bad? Every little thing in between? Or are we in control of our lives? Or do we at least play a part in how our lives turn out? And we hear this sentiment in many ways from our culture, such as, I am the master of my own destiny. It's my life. I can do what I want with it. Or maybe if I put my mind to it, if I just try really hard, I can achieve whatever my heart desires. And on and on and on it goes. Well. God says he really is in control. And you're probably not surprised I would tell you that because of where we are and, uh, and the fact that I'm preaching from the Bible. But how can we know that God really is in control and how can he really be in control when there is so much bad or difficulty going on all the time? What I will share with you this morning is how wonderful are the promises of God to love you enough to be in total control of your individual circumstances while not leaving you unaccountable for your actions, yet being right with you throughout. Now, before we go any further, it's important to understand this concept, that people do make choices. They are our choices, and we are held responsible for them. The Bible is full of references to human choice. Joshua 24, 15 says, Choose this day 
whom you will serve. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And Deuteronomy 30.19 says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Now, this does not negate God's will. Scripture teaches very clearly that mankind's accountability dwells together with God's sovereignty. For example, in Exodus, we read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh rejected Moses and Aaron's pleas for mercy for their people, yet God judged Pharaoh for his decisions. Pharaoh later even acknowledged his own guilt, saying, I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. We also see that while the crucifixion of Jesus was predestined by God, the Jews, Gentiles, Herod, Pontius Pilate, all were considered morally guilty for their sinful acts. So we must base our understanding on Scripture, and Scripture shows that humans do make real, genuine choices. But God is ultimately the one who determines what we will choose. It has been said that, quote, we should believe that God's sovereignty is consistent with our moral agency, meaning our capacity to choose, simply because God says that it is. And God always speaks the truth. Now, in some ways, we can understand this, and I recognize in some ways we can't. We can understand it because God is a big God. It's his universe. He can do exactly what he wants all of the time. If he wants that bird to eat that worm, he has the power to do that. And if he wants that person to get a good job and that person to lose a job, he can move the pieces into the place for that to happen. But in some ways, we can't understand this, or at least we don't want to. And that's where I want to kind of park the message for a little bit. Because there, you may feel there is no way that you can accept this. There's no way you can believe in a God who allows or even in some way causes all of the ugliness around. I recognize that something may have happened in your life that is so painful that you cannot believe God caused it to happen. Nor can you understand why he would do that. You may have even wanted no part of a God who would bring that into your life. And to that, I would say, you make sense. You see, it is, vir it is virtually impossible to believe this. Our sense of right and wrong, our sense of good and evil is challenged by such a concept. We cannot reconcile the facts in our present state of mind, which is a fallen state of mind. It's a sinful state of mind. We can accept that God has the power to control all things, but we find it hard to accept that he has the desire to control all things because many of them are painful to us. And yet, we must understand that he thinks and he acts in a certain way. And in God's nature and character, he is not like us. He is pure, and he is holy. He's without sin. He is perfect, and he is righteous, and we aren't. He is outside of time and space, and yet we are bound by it. 
as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts, God says in Isaiah 55, 9. His work is perfect, and all his ways are justice, Deuteronomy 32, 4. So when we accept that God knows better than we do, and not only that, that he sacrificed his only begotten son for you, would he do that? Would he go to that great of length and not want what is best for you? Of course not. It's just that our concept of what we think is, is best, what we think is best, is, often differs from what God knows is best. Let me say that again since I botched it so badly. It's not just that our concept of what we think is best often differs from what God knows is best. You see, we tend to think life should aim for ease and comfort. Those often are our main goals. Yet when do we learn lessons best? I think we all know this. When all is going smoothly? No. Our most enduring lessons are born out of adversity. And guess what God often uses to lead us to wisdom and knowledge and complete dependence on Him? Yes, trials, difficulties, and adversity. I think of David, described as a man after God's own heart, fleeing for his life from a murderous King Saul. Or think of Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, being thrown into prison even though he had committed no crime. Or think of Hezekiah, king of Judah, inside of Jerusalem facing a massive army from Assyria threatening to overtake them. And there's many, many others, from Abraham to Zechariah, and each one at some point must have thought, how have things gone so wrong? This can't be part of God's plan. However, God sees the end from the beginning. He sees it all. And he knows it all. He knows what ultimately is best, whereas we only see the now. We only know pretty much right now. We can barely see what is the right path ahead of us, and often we get that wrong. I may think that going to this school or taking that job is the right move, but do I really know how that's going to turn out? No. It's really mostly a guess. But God doesn't guess. Our ways are not his ways. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. Thank goodness for that. He is not much of a God if I am his equal. The Apostle Paul sums up in the book of Romans how his beautiful view of the sovereignty of God. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans 11, starting in verse 33. Here we see Paul has been explaining the mystery of salvation, previously for Jews only, now being revealed to the Gentiles. And he concludes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Then Paul quotes from both Isaiah and Job as he goes on, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him 
that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So, is God really in control? Well, the Bible writers certainly believed so. On virtually every page of Scripture are the decrees of God clearly spelled out and coming to pass. Along with that verse in Romans, here are just a few of the multitude of similar declarations, all plainly understood to mean God is in control of all things. Daniel 4.35. He does what he wills with the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? Ephesians 1.11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Isaiah 14.24. The Lord of hosts has sworn... As I have designed, so shall it be. And as I have planned, so shall it come to pass. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Jeremiah 32.17 Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, O great and mighty God, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. And finally, the beautiful Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As you read through your Bibles, see how clearly God displays his sovereignty in every facet of human lives. Sovereignty or sovereign is an important but basic word. It means simply having supreme power or authority. It carries the idea that whatever the, that power or authority wants or says or deems, it happens. For example... Not a sparrow can fall to the ground apart from God's will. We read in Matthew 10, 29. Prophet Jeremiah asks Lamentations, Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? And in Daniel 4, 17, he writes, He is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Again, God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. That does not sound like a kind of hands-off God to me. It sounds like the one who created everything in six days, or it does not sound like someone who created everything in six days and just left it alone to, to progress willy-nilly on its own. Author Terry Johnson writes, and I like how he puts this, first, if there is a quote, first, if there is a God, what happens must be his will. If anything that happens that is not his will, he is not God, and we are in trouble. If there are stray molecules wandering around doing things that he has not ordained, then God has a competitor out there equal to himself, and he is not God as the Bible describes him. For God, with a little g, to be God, with a capital G, he must be sovereign. 
and pay attention to this line, for him to be sovereign at all, he must be sovereign of all. Again, for him to be sovereign at all, he must be sovereign of all. And that leads us to our main point today. There is one thing that I want, if you only take one thing from today, I want you to take this. That God exercises his sovereignty over everything for his glory and for our good. Again, God exercises his sovereignty over everything for his glory and for our good. So let's delve a little further into this. Dr. Jerry Bridges, uh, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, he says God's glory and our good are, quote, inextricably bound together. You can't separate them. They go hand in hand. God never seeks one at the expense of the other. And he won't allow anything to get in the way of our good, even as he seeks his glory. And that should be very encouraging to us, especially when we are going through times of adversity. So I want to take a closer look at these two aspects of God's sovereignty. And the first is for his glory. God's glory dominates scripture. It permeates it. It's everywhere. The very word glory appears more than 400 times in the Bible. It's there way back in early in the Old Testament in Exodus. Chapter 16, verse 10, and as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And now we go through all the Bible, and we come to the end of the New Testament. Seventeen times glory appears in Revelation alone, such as chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, everyone, even unbelievers, sees God's glory in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, we read in Psalm 19, and that's so true. You don't have to believe in Jesus to be amazed by Yosemite or the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or take one look at a starry sky on a dark night, cloudless night, and just marvel, be in wonder at his creation. And heck, even on our own OVBC hikes, we really marvel at the, the beauty of waterfalls and cliffs and streams and flowers and butterflies. And, and it's amazing. It's right here. And by the way, I encourage you to join us the last Saturday of each month. For a, for a hike. So anyway, then there is the aspect of God's glory coming through his interacting with people. For example, Exodus 14, 18, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. The examples of God exercising his sovereignty for his glory are actually too numerous to cover. He feeds multitudes with a few loaves and a few fish. He calms the sea in a storm in an instant. He makes a ruddy little houseboy kill a giant with a little stone. And he saves an entire pagan people by making a man get swallowed by a huge fish and later being spit out. And of course, he brings Jesus Christ back to life and ascends him to heaven where he now sits and intercedes for us and so many others. 
at the end of the book of John, John writes, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Is God in control? Now, this part of God's sovereignty we have an easier time with, I think. It's easy to see that God makes himself look good by doing miracles. He can bring himself glory. He can do that in, by controlling inanimate objects such as land and sea and skies and outer space. But it's not quite as easy, I think, when we consider the second point, which is for our good. So for that, we look at the story of Joseph. He was the favored son of Jacob. God certainly displayed his sovereignty in Joseph's life, and it was for Joseph's good, but it really didn't look that way for a while. In fact, even when it looked like his problems were solved and all was right again, God moved him through another severe trial of adversity, and yet, looking back, we now see how all of God's maneuvering was for Joseph's good. You remember the story. Joseph told his older brothers of a dream he had in which they bowed down to him. They already resented Joseph because he was treated better than they were by their father. In other words, the father spoiled Joseph. After the dream, you can imagine the brothers were jealous. They were angry at him, and they actually ultimately hatched a plot to kill him, and they changed the plot to not merely sell him into slavery. Well, while Joseph was enslaved in Egypt to a powerful official named Potiphar, Joseph worked hard, and he did well. Genesis 39 says he was successful, yet Joseph was a slave. He had no rights. He had been betrayed by his own brothers, and he had been taken by strangers to a foreign country. Was God really in control? Well, read what it says in Genesis 39.3. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So we'll keep going. Because of this, Potiphar actually put Joseph in charge of all that he had. Yes, we say, God is now in control. But wait, his fortunes are about to turn again. Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph. You might think that's a good thing, except she repeatedly tries him to get, go to bed with her. And Joseph does the thing that we should all do when faced with temptation, flee. So Joseph flees, smart man. He doesn't reason with her. He doesn't argue. He just gets out of there. Well, wife doesn't like that. So she accuses him of rape. Potiphar throws Joseph in prison after the accusation. We'd look at that and say, oh, no, this is not part of God's plan, is it? I mean, it was all going so well. And Joseph could have had such an impact being in charge of Potiphar and his estate. God, you can't be in control now. I think if we were in Joseph's position, who among us wouldn't say, at this point, I'm out of here. No way, God. I'm not trusting you. You let me down. I'm my father's favored son. I, I, was, I was planning to serve you. 
I was planning to do this, and I was planning to do that. God, why did you mess that up? Notice, that's my plan. This is how I would serve you. This is how I would do it. And that's where we usually get into trouble. Fortunately, Joseph continues to be faithful to God. We are not told that he complained or grumbled or was angry with God. Just the opposite, actually. Joseph's behavior is so exemplary that the chief of the prison puts Joseph in charge of all the prisoners. He basically gets to do whatever he wants. Genesis 39.23 tells us, And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And eventually Joseph is given an opportunity to interpret a dream for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is the number one guy. He's, the, he's the, the head honcho, the ruler in all of Egypt. And Pharaoh is so pleased by Joseph's interpretation, he takes Joseph out of prison and puts him in charge of all of Egypt. So basically, Joseph is now the number two man in all of Egypt behind only Pharaoh, who really just wants to sit on his throne. So Joseph gets busy. And when a worldwide famine hits, Joseph's preparation enables Egypt to have plenty. People come from everywhere to line up for bread. And those people include Joseph's brothers. Yes, the same brothers who sold him into slavery in the first place. Now, Joseph was 17 when they sold him into slavery, and he's now 39, and his brothers don't even recognize him. They get to the front of the line, and they bow down to him, just as Joseph had told them in his dream. Well, Joseph recognizes them, and he doesn't reveal himself initially, but eventually he does in a very emotional scene. And listen closely to what Joseph tells his brothers and how God's sovereignty is on display. Genesis 45, verse 5. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers. Do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord to all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. This is a powerful recognition that God is in control of individuals' lives. Joseph's revelation to his brothers paves the way to, him, to, to them to reconcile with each other after many years. Although they do still wonder whether Joseph still is going to someday get back at them. And sure enough, time comes when their father Jacob dies. The brothers are afraid that Joseph will take revenge on them for all the evil that they have done to him in the past. And they ask for his forgiveness. They even bow down to him again, saying, Behold, we are your servants. Now listen to Joseph's response to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. 
You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Can we see how God orders all of the events for the good of His people? He is in charge, and He delivers His chosen people at His appointed time. Not one minute sooner, not one minute later. Why? Because He loves His people unconditionally, and nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from His love, the Bible says. Early 20th century theologian Lorraine Bettner, yes, it's a guy, Lorraine, wrote that the Christian who understands God's sovereignty may not yet fully comprehend all the details, we get that, but they can be confident of the future. And Mr. Bettner writes, quote, because even amid adversities, he knows, the Christian knows that his eternal destiny is fixed and forever blessed. I want you to remember we have a home that is eternal, not made with hands. For some of us, the trials may last possibly to the end of our earthly lives, and there's no getting around it. It is painful. It's hard. It's very difficult, and it hurts. It can be excruciating at times and often feel like it just will not pass. But for those who trust in God, there is laid up for them a treasure in heaven. And it is far more enduring and valuable than the few years we have on earth. It is the treasure of eternity spent in the very presence of the Lord himself. So let's remember that God is sovereign for his glory and our good. Now I want to conclude with a few thoughts. Would you dare to tell God that he is wrong? Hey, God, I think you're really blowing it here because I think fill in the blank. Hey, God, I really think this ministry would be better in, say, Hawaii than the Middle East. Hey, God, you know I like to play music. That's what I should be doing in church, not helping out with the construction crew pouring cement to make a new nursery. Hey, God, you know, I just don't have enough time in my day to write a letter or go visit one of our church members in the hospital. I mean, i got to watch a football game. It's the big game. You wouldn't want me to miss that, spend time with my family and friends. And we do that all the time. So here's what God has to say about it. I'll give you three passages. Isaiah 45, 9. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Romans 9, 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, and another for dishonorable use. In Romans 8.28, we all know this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. R.C. Sproul says, quote, I look at Romans 8.28 and remind myself that what I'm experiencing right now feels bad, tastes bad, 
is bad. Nevertheless, the Lord is using it for my good. And this is the foundation that makes it possible for the Christian to rejoice even while in the midst of pain and anxiety. And we are those who are to rejoice because, because Christ has overcome the world. It is that truth and that certainty that gives relief to all our anxieties. And isn't that true? I like how Dustin last Sunday put it. He explained the cost of being a disciple of Christ, and he finished with a question. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Well, of course it is, he said. He better have said that. He explained that those who follow Jesus receive joy, happiness, and eternal life, and these things are infinitely greater than what the world offers. And then he went on to list a dozen or more amazingly deep and satisfying blessings. And ultimately, Dustin concluded, our faith is trusting that God will do the best thing. That's a total trust, and it is built on the fact that God is sovereign. Will you trust that God does the best thing? The kids on that cross-country team in the movie, they eventually trusted the coach to do the best thing for them. And it's a good thing they did. Because then when they looked back at the end of a successful season, they understood how he used all those things to mold them into the image of a true cross-country team. And yes, that's the parallel to us and our relationship with God. He does everything to mold us into his image. He knows what it takes to get, get us there. We don't. We can only get there by yielding to him and his ways. Would you today embrace the sovereignty of the only one who knows everything it takes and who loves you and cares for you despite your sinful nature? The one who gave his only son on the cross for you. The one who will never leave you nor forsake you. And the one who is active in the details of your individual life. And yes, the one who will even take you through the depths of adversity to bring you the greatest good and to end the greatest glory. Let's pray. Dear Father, let us willingly surrender to your will, to your goodness, and your glory. We pray for you to be on display in the details of each of our lives. May they be pleasing in your sight. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.